I'm Julie Coleman. I'm part of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. There's four of us that share the pulpit, and I'm delighted to be with you here this morning. Um, this is a very special Sunday for our Shana, who is graduating uh, from, or has graduated? Has graduated. All right. Technically, she is graduated, so, whew. but she, <laughs> but we're very excited to be able to celebrate her today. It's a very special day for all of us. So I want to start with a story about another Sunday morning that didn't seem so special at the time. Um, people were waking up to their coffee. Most of them went to church, came home to a nice Sunday dinner. That's back when they had Sunday dinners. And, um, but on a naval base in Hawaii, things were not so normal. People were still rubbing sleep from their eyes, and something huge was about to erupt, and not a volcano. What was about to happen was going to change the world as they knew it. Early in the morning, on December 7, 1941, more than 350 Japanese planes attacked without warning or even declaring war. 3,700 American soldiers were killed, over 1,000 more were wounded, and it was a terrible loss in terms of equipment as well. Eight battleships were either sunk or damaged, along with three cruisers and three destroyers, and nearly 200 planes were destroyed. Devastating. So the next day, President Roosevelt related the terrible news to a joint session of Congress, and that uh, speech was um, telecast live so the entire country could hear it. After the initial address, this is what he said. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Now within, uh, and it went on. But within an hour of the speech, Congress declared war on Japan. A couple of days later, Germany and and um, Italy declared war on us, and suddenly we were right in the middle of a two-front war. Uh, it was going to be a beginning of a four-year time period where Americans were going to be tested to the limit and stretched beyond their imaginings. The world would never be the same. Well, the story we're about to read today was um, said by Jesus to be another day that would always be remembered. It was an act so profound it's forever memorialized in the Word of God. That's pretty good, right? So what was it? Well, before I read the story, I want to give you some background. Because we always, we always want to look at context. It was the week following Palm Sunday. Jesus had entered Jerusalem, riding on a donkey, on cloaks and palm branches, people singing Hosanna. And it was the week preceding Passover. <clears throat> Passover was one of the holidays when people from all over the Mediterranean world would come to celebrate. And the city, which was usually about 55,000 people, would swell to about 250,000 people. And Jesus spent the rest of the week then, or the early part of the week, teaching in the temple. Well, the religious leaders, they had enough. It was time to take action. And that's where our story begins. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. While he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial, a very costly perfume of pure nard, and she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? 
She's done a good deed to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them, but you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. They were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. Let's ask God to help us with this passage. Lord, we thank you for your word and how meaningful it is and how powerful it is in our lives. And I'd just like to ask you, Lord, that you would help me to correctly interpret and teach this passage and that you would use it in all of our hearts to transform us um, and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so before we can really get to the heart of the story, there's several questions that we have to answer. I always have questions when I look at a passage, and I always write them down as I'm going through because when I get stuck when I'm studying, it's a good place to start looking. So the first thing, of course, is why were the chief priests and um, scribes out to kill Jesus? Well, you remember that the week in Jerusalem began with Jesus' triumphal entry, that Palm Sunday. He went into the temple at that point, and... Uh, the, t- the court of the Gentiles, the outer court of the temple, was filled with vendors. Now, they weren't just ordinary guys trying to make a buck. These guys were extortionists. They were taking advantage of all the pilgrims who had come into town to uh, worship God during um, Passover, and uh, everyone came and they offered a sacrifice. Now, what would happen is they had to have a guy approve the sacrifices because sacrifices had to be without blemish, And what they would do was reject the sacrifices people brought with them, so they would have to buy a sacrifice in the court of the Gentiles. But they raised the price. I mean, really raised the price. From like 2 to 75, whatever the thing was. I can't remember the, I guess, denarii. But anyway, so it was was a huge thing. It was like crazy extortion. Um, And then people also had to pay a tithe at at Passover, a gift to the Lord, but they weren't allowed to use... Roman money, that was filthy lucre, no, no Roman money. So what they had to do was exchange their Roman money that they carried, which was the trade at the time, to temple money. But they, they, if you ever tried to use American Express back in the old days, when you go to, they charge a lot of money for you to change your money over. When I was over in France um, a couple of years ago, I couldn't believe how much money I lost just exchanging. And, but that's what they were doing, they were exchanging. And it was like over a day's wages just for the privilege of getting temple money in return for their Roman money. It was extortion. And you know who was behind all that notorious thing? You won't believe it. The high priest's family. They were kind of like the Jewish mafia. They were using extortion and their power for profit. They were the ones who were getting rich on the backs of the good people who had arrived to try to offer sacrifices, tithe, and to please God. So when Jesus turned the table over, tables over, that was a righteous act because what he was doing was cleansing the temple of something that was contaminating the ground of God's holy temple. But of course, now, when you threaten anyone's bank account, you're going to get a reaction. You know, we, pay, we have a wonderful girl that does our taxes. I kind of ignore all the tax things that are going on because they're always changing taxes around, right? And, and Congress is doing this and taking away this and giving this. And, so I just ignore the whole thing. And really, our stuff hasn't changed over the years. Pretty much we get the same. Well, this year when we got our tax return back, 
we were short like $2,000. Now I'm paying attention. What was this tax law that they passed? You see, when you worry about somebody, somebody gets to your pocketbook, you're all ears and eyes. And that's exactly what happened with them. They gave him a strong reaction because Jesus was a threat to them, a threat to their leadership, a threat to their prophet, and he had gained a very large following with all of his profound teaching and miracles that he had done. And any act against him was going to end in public outcry, and they knew this, especially during Passover, when the theme of the whole holiday was redemption. And so that provoked this strong nationalistic feeling that they were going to rid themselves of the Roman oppression and be free. And the Messiah was going to lead them. Riots had happened before on this holiday. So much so that the Roman governor, Pilate, name probably familiar to you, would travel from Caesarea, where it's where he ruled from, to Jerusalem and stay there during the Passover holiday because he was afraid um, of what could happen. He wanted to keep a close eye on things. And any sign of an uprising was going to be squashed immediately. And that, that threatened the Jewish leaders, Roman-given authority. So they needed to bring Jesus down. John tells us, it says, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They wanted to get rid of him, but they had to do it out of the public eye because of the possible reaction. But Jesus was staying out of sight until the proper moment. So they sent an order. This is what it said. Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders. If anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Now in our passage today, Mark uses a word translated here as seeking. They were seeking him. Now a lot of times we think, oh, we're seeking Jesus. We want to follow him and submit to him. That's not the word for that. This seeking is different. It's a, it's a negative word. It's a determination to control rather than, um, than something uh, positive. So Jesus taught during the days of that week. And at night, he returned to Bethany. It was about two miles outside of town. He had good friends that he stayed with. Uh, we think he stayed with uh, Martha and Mary and Lazarus. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead very, just a few weeks ago. So Lazar- uh, it was a two-mile walk to their place. And on one of those nights that he went out of the city and stayed with them, this guy named Simon the leper hosts a dinner. Now, was it a different house than Lazarus and Martha and Mary? A lot of people theorize that Simon the leper was their father, and therefore it was all the same house. There's no way of knowing. That's all theory, maybe. But we do know that while we call him Simon the leper, he wasn't actually a leper anymore. If he was, he would not be allowed to host any kind of dinner. So I think Mark calls him that, for the the basic reason to let us know that Simon has been healed. And no doubt it was going to be Jesus that had done it. So, because there was no cure for leprosy at that time. So, what is this nard, an alabaster? Well, nard is a perennial herb. It's grown in Asia. The roots and stem of the plant are dried, and the oil is extracted from them. It's very costly oil. It's stored and used on only very special occasions. And an alabaster flask was made of soft calcite stone, and it was commonly used to house the finest perfume anointments. Nard preserved in alabaster was so valuable that it was often passed from mother to daughter, from one generation to the next. And Pliny the Elder, a guy outside of biblical writings, writer in the first century, said this, the best ointment is preserved in alabaster. 
So anointing someone at a banquet was to show them honor. It was usually associated with joy and festivity, but Jesus found this woman's act to be far more profound than just an ordinary celebration. We'll see that in a moment. So why did the disciples then rebuke her actions? Now, the disciples' reaction was pretty strong. What a waste. She could have sold that flask and its contents for big money. She could have used that money to feed the poor. Instead, she pours it over Jesus' head. Ridiculous. You can just picture those thoughts going in their mind. They are, what Mark tells us is, indignant. Now, he uses that word um, in other places. Jesus was indignant when the disciples refused to let the little children come to him. And the other ten disciples were indignant when John and James asked to be sitting at Jesus' right hand and his left. So indignant was kind of like a a righteous anger, what you would think it would be. So then why would they think Jesus would approve at their outrage? Well, it was Passover. And the custom at that holiday was to give to the poor in the evening of Passover. And in general, almsgiving was a very important part of piety in Judaism. And in the Bible, it was in many, many places. God directed his people to take care of the poor. Psalm 41 says, How blessed is he who considers the helpless. The Lord will deliver him in the day of trouble. The Lord will protect him and keep him alive, and he shall be called blessed upon the earth. And even Jesus had taught how important the poor were to God when he quoted Isaiah. He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. So I'm pretty sure they felt pretty safe in all that indignation. Actually kind of expecting a little commendation for their spiritual thought. I mean, who wouldn't commend someone for prioritizing the needs of the poor? And so rather than throw away a year's worth of wages by pouring it over his head. But rather than commending them for what they said about her, Jesus corrects them. He says, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed for me, for you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you did not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Now that last little phrase there, anointed my body beforehand for the burial, I think that really gets to the significance of her act. So what was her act? How was it so significant? Well, the disciples were all about the temporary, the immediate immediate pressing, presenting need. But Jesus knew what he was about to do was way beyond that. He had not come to simply heal the sick or feed the poor. You see, poverty and sickness and all of those terrible things that we all dread is a symptom of a much greater problem. The fallenness of humanity and creation. Well, Jesus was here to correct that problem. He was going to defeat sin. He was going to defeat Satan and death. And he was there to inaugurate the kingdom of God. So his coming was a really big deal. And it should be a time of extravagant celebration. It was as if Jesus was saying, you can and should give to the poor, but something even more important is at work right now, right here. A lavish act of pouring out this expensive oil signified the extravagant grace of God. And it was about to be poured 
onto mankind. So then what message is Mark communicating in this passage? Well, to see the full significance that Mark is placing on this event, we need to note the details in the context in which he put it. Now, there's a couple of things we need to notice. First, Mark is using a literary technique, once again, that we've been learning about all the way through the book of Mark. And it's called, I, I call it the sandwiching literary technique. I don't think I made it up. I read it somewhere. But there's three parts. You start with part A, which is the beginning story. And then, of course, part B, that's a different story that interrupts the first story. And then part A, again, finishes up the beginning. So you've got A and A, and in the middle, the, the, the um, B, the, the, the story that um, is surrounded. <laughs> so, okay. So Mark first started behind-the-scenes action with the chief priests and the scribes. Then he ends the passage with Judas meeting the chief priests and agreeing to betray Jesus. The middle part of the story is this story about the woman who's doing that anointing. But in that first section, A, Mark gives a detail that's not mentioned by any of the other gospel writers when they tell the story. It says, now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away. So we need to pay attention here. Why is Jesus, Mark talking about unleavened bread? Was it enough just to say Passover? Well, the day of unleavened bread began on the day of Passover, and it lasted for a week. You find it in Deuteronomy 16. Leaven is another word for yeast. Yeast is the ingredient that you put into bread dough to make it rise. It takes a little tiny bit of yeast to permeate a loaf and make it rise. When God was giving the Israelites instructions for the last meal before they left Egypt with Moses, he told them, make bread without leaven. Because they'd be in a hurry and they wouldn't have time, it would show the urgency, they wouldn't have time for the let the bread rise. Yeast is often used in the Bible as a picture of sin, how permeating sin is, and how it can impact a whole loaf, even though only a small amount. So baking bread without leaven was a symbol for purity. So in Jesus' time, as the blood was drained from the sacrificial lamb at Passover, so the power of leaven was removed from the bread offered to God. After the shedding of blood the sin is removed. How's that for cool? I think Mark is reminding us about the Feast of the Unleavened Bread because Jesus is about to shed his blood on the cross for the sin of the world. And once that redemptive act was completed, the power of sin over us would be removed forever. So this makes the woman's extravagant act not only appropriate, but almost necessary to mark the significance of his death. And one more thing that I noticed as I was going through this passage is Mark sets up a contrast here between two personages. The first, of course, is the chief priests and scribes, and we can put Judas in that because he was working in cahoots with them. And then the other is the woman. So, um, so they're very different from each other. So I made a little chart. Didn't want to disappoint anybody. I always have to have a chart. Okay, so I put down all the things that we see about the chief priests and scribes. Um, they were greedy for wealth and power, but the anointing woman gave everything she had. They had evil intentions. They were plotting a murder, but the woman had no motive but to demonstrate her love and devotion. 
They were motivated by self-interest. She had sacrificial love. They had pride. She had humility. They were building their own personal human empires. But she had a mindset for God's kingdom and purposes. They were insiders with power. You can't get much more inside than the high priests. But she was an outsider with no social standing. And finally, they were plotting to destroy the Lord's anointed. She comprehends Jesus' status and his significance. I think Mark has placed these stories side by side to show us the significance of her extravagant act. Even the disciples got it wrong, but she got it right. And as positively as Mark portrays her, we should allow what she did and what Jesus had to say about it to impact our lives here now in the 21st century. So we come to the so what. Hopefully, you're hoping right now to identify with the woman in our passage because she's clearly where she needs to be in her attitudes and in her actions and knowledge. <clears throat> so what would that look like today? Because, hate to disappoint you, but we can't go around pouring oil over people's heads. So what does that mean? Well, in the church, it's easy for us to focus on the lesser and to lose focus on our true kingdom purpose. We can become so concerned with our daily tasks, the programs we're participating in, the events, and even the church budgets, that we lose sight sometimes of the forest for the trees. Of course, ministering to the poor is important. Of course it is. No one's going to say it isn't, and Jesus wouldn't have either. But as many as the good things that we're spending in our lives doing, there's one thing that trumps over everything else. And that's a commitment to God and his kingdom. Jesus said in Matthew, seek first the kingdom of God. And he also said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And that's one of those passages that people struggle over a little. I had faced that one time. I was on a television interview, and I'd give, they, when you do a television interview, you give them a list of questions, and so you'll know all the answers when they ask you. And that's what I had done, and I was ready to go on, and, and my book was about Jesus and women. And so anyway, I'm sitting there on live TV, and one of the hosts says, so what did Jesus mean anyway about hating your mother and father? <laughs> I was a deer in the headlight. Live cameras are rolling. I thought, God, please help me answer this question correctly. It's a hard question, isn't it? But there's one thing I remembered as I was talking. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus looked out for his mother while he's dying on the cross, asking John to take care of her. So it wasn't that he hated his mother. So then it must have meant something else, right? Well, I think that our love for others, even our own family, should look like hate compared to how much we love God and our commitment to him. We were created to be in a relationship with him. And we want to reflect his glory to the world around us. And in the end, all the sin, all the poverty, all the war, all the exploitation, they're all symptoms of the greater, promeny, uh, the greater problem of humanity's fallenness, the thing that alienates us from a right relationship with our holy creator. Jesus came for far more than a temporary fix. He came to bring reconciliation to God and his creation. So, while the trees are important, we can't lose sight of the forest. As believers, we need to keep God's big picture in mind. Well, what does that look like? 
It means going for the end game. We need to align ourselves with God's agenda. We need to build his kingdom. We need to help other people come to know him. And being a part of people's lives should be done with no thought of what we might gain from a relationship. But we need to give extravagantly just as the anointed woman, anointing woman did because we have received God's extravagant grace. Jesus said that the woman's act would be remembered. Truly I say to you, whatever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. So what should we remember about her? I think we need to remember her humility, her sacrificial love, that she was acting without an expectation of receiving, that, we, that she kept her expectations and plans right in alignment with God's purposes. You know, Melanie and I spent the week at Blue Ridge, Blue Ridge Mountain Christian Writers Conference. <laughs> Big, long acronym there. But anyway, <clears throat> this past week, it's a wonderful time. We had a blast. But one of the people that I got to know better, I, ever, I had already known her before, was a woman named Monica Schmelter. And she's a Christian television personality. There's a show that she has called Bridges, where she interviews people. She's a wonderful girl, lots, lots of love and charm. I, I, I adore her. But anyway, we were talking at one point, and she was telling me that it's hard for her because, because she's a television personality, and, and uh, she said, when I'm in with a bunch of writers, the writers all come up to me, and they want to be my friend so that I will interview them on my show, and they'll sell lots of books. She said, it's hard to tell who my genuine friends really are. And I thought that was kind of sad. But so they didn't really care about her, just what they, she could do for them. And, you know, I think sometimes that's how I interact with God. I go through the motions so I can place demands on him that uh, will bring us happiness. And, be, uh, and then I get angry or disillusioned when he doesn't come through and do what I thought he would do. Of course, he sees right through all of that, doesn't he? So what does he want from us then? I'll tell you what he wants. He wants our genuine love and affection. He wants us to approach him in humility without the, what we can get but just by responding to him, understanding who he is, living with a kind of extravagant love that will make others sit up and take notice. He wants us determining to live with a kingdom perspective that will continually align us with his purposes. Now, maybe you've never entered in a relationship like that with God. Maybe he's tugging at your heart right now. His purpose for you is to be in a relationship with him. He offers the gift of eternal life, so that any who would believe in him would have eternal life. He sent Jesus to pay for your sins and to release you from the power that sin has over you. He is the original extravagant gift giver. And all he wants for us to do is to respond to what he offers. If you're interested in that, if you've never done that before, I wish you would meet me over at that little communion table after the service. And I'd love to share with you from God's word what he has in mind. Um, Help you begin a new relationship with him. Don't walk out of here until you get it settled because it's going to be the most important decision of your whole life. So we're going to have a little song there and then I'll be closing in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your extravagant gift to us. Your only son who gave his life to pay our ransom. May we live every day in light of that gift. And keep the big picture of your ultimate purposes and kingdom in front of us always. And Lord, we'd also like to thank you for the gift of our Shana, 
who is such a blessing to everyone here in this room. Thank you for what you're doing in her life, for how much she loves you, and for her desire to know you more. And we're asking your blessing on her as she begins a new phase in her life. Thank you that she will not travel alone, that you will always be present and available to her. Please also bless her family. Thank you for the example they give to us in love and in how they live their lives. And we thank you too, Lord, for the lunch that we're about to share. May this be a time of joy and celebration for Shana's accomplishments and bright future. Thank you for your faithfulness to her and to all of us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.